Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 13, Matthew writes, Then Jesus came from the Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him saying, I need to be baptized by you and you're coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. And when he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased Remember that in Matthew's gospel, Jesus is the king. And for those who doubt that he is the king, Matthew has made the argument he is king by prophecy and he's king by paternity and he's king by genealogy. He is king because he's been identified by the eastern wise men. But Jesus has now grown up and Jesus is about to embark on his earthly ministry Raised in Nazareth, relative to John the Baptist, Jesus meets John in the wilderness of Judea. And we read about his baptism. And we might think of this baptism as a kind of coming out party or ministry launch or even as the king's identification. This is a public ceremony where All three persons of the Godhead unite to initiate the ministry of the Messiah. We've learned about John's baptism as a baptism of repentance. Of the children of Israel and the people of Israel turning from their sin and turning to the Lord. So why then must Jesus be baptized? What does Christ's baptism really mean? What does baptism, for that matter, mean? What's the difference between John's baptism and baptism in the church? In this passage, John the Baptist will at first object to Jesus' request to be baptized. And then he's going to obey the Savior. The Holy Spirit will descend like a dove upon Jesus, a voice from heaven will boom the approval of the Father. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So he gives a sign that the king is going to be baptized. And this first verse, you might overlook if you're not careful. But look what it says. Then Jesus came from the Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. I want you to pause for just a moment. You may be unfamiliar with the geography of the Holy Land. You might not understand that when Jesus comes from the Galilee and he goes down to the lower Jordan, Jesus will walk 60 miles. Would you walk 60 miles to be baptized? Would you walk 60 miles to go to church? Drive? Some people are so discouraged by 
their life or their circumstances. And I'm beginning to understand it. How far are you willing to go to experience the power of God and the presence to God and, and to hear the voice of God and confirm the favor of God in your life? There's a reason why Jesus is going to get up and he's going to walk the 60 miles down to the Jordan and join the crowds. He's not joining the crowds Because he's a crowd joiner. He's not doing it as a social event. Jesus knows, Jesus knows, Jesus knows that he's going to experience the power of God and the presence of God. He's going to hear the voice of God. God's going to confirm the reality that his ministry is marked by the Lord. And is going to be empowered by the Lord. And it could very well be that different one of you are in different parts of your ministry. Your ministry might just be beginning and you might be in the middle of a fruitful ministry. You might be coming to the end of your ministry. But the truth is, the truth is, the truth is when we come to church, we want to hear from the Lord. We want to experience his voice. We want him to speak to us in the circumstance that we find ourselves in. And it might seem odd for me to even say this, but even as I'm speaking right at this very moment, even as you're hearing my voice with these words, I'm going to invite you to just take a moment, even as I continue the study, that I certainly want you to listen to what I'm saying, but I also want you to pray. I want you to pray, Lord, Lord, I want, I want to experience the power of God, and I want to experience the presence of God, and I want to hear the voice of God, and I want to confirm the favor of God in my life. I want to hear from you, Lord. I want to hear from you about the direction that I'm going and what I'm doing. I want you to speak to me in my circumstances. And look at verse 14. It says, and John tried to prevent him saying, well, wait wait a minute. I need to be baptized by you. And you're coming to me. Why does John protest? Does John realize that Jesus is sinless? Does John realize that even though there's no one like him, he's the one who needs a savior? Why does John sense the proper order is for Jesus to baptize John? There's hints that are given to us in the Bible that John and Jesus were relatives, close relatives. You'll remember that Jesus' mother, Mary, shows up When Elizabeth has given birth to John, her son, John had a lifestyle of abstinence from ordinary pleasure, a commitment to righteousness, yet John recognizes that there's something about Jesus that's different. But I'm going to also suggest to you that Jesus deeply desires to identify with his near relative's ministry, even if he is a Baptist. I know it reminds me of a story. There's a Presbyterian, a Methodist, and a Baptist, and each is facing this problem. The church is infested with bats. And so the Presbyterian said that they shot him with shotguns. The Methodist said, 
Well, we're a lot more compassionate. We'll, we'll wrap them in a big blanket, take them out into the woods as far away as we can and let them go. But they always beat us back to the church. And then the Baptist pastor said, we baptized each one of them and made them members of our church and we haven't seen them since. That's the challenge. When you have a religious event going on and you miss the point, in verse 15 it says, But Jesus answered and said to them, or said to him, Permit it to be so for now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed it. The Lord provides permission. Why? Because again, Jesus wants to identify with John and his ministry. And then he says the words, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Warren Wiersbe offers six reasons why It was fitting. The first reason is obligation. To fulfill all righteousness. And we're going to talk about that in a moment. Consecration. In the Old Testament, the priest was washed. Remember, water is a symbol for a lot of different things. Water can represent cleansing, washing, purifying, It can represent life, but it can also represent judgment. And in the Old Testament, the priest was washed and then the priest was anointed with oil, which becomes a type and a picture of the Holy Spirit in Exodus chapter 29, verse 4. So Jesus will submit to water baptism and the Holy Spirit. Spirit is going to show up and manifest himself And number three is commendation. That is, Jesus will commend the ministry of John the Baptist. This means he approves of the ministry and the message of John the Baptist, thus obligating the people to listen to John and obey John's instructions concerning his admonition and exhortation to turn from their sin and turn to God. And tragically, tragically, many of the religious leaders will will reject the message and they won't obey the message. And then number four is proclamation. This was John's official introduction of Jesus to the Jewish nation. And so like an invitation to a party and the crowd shows up, this is what is happening in part in the passage. Jesus is being officially introduced to the nation. And number five, it's anticipation. That is, this water baptism will will look forward to Christ's baptism. A different baptism. A baptism of suffering. Where Jesus will go to a cross. Jesus will fulfill all righteousness in that sacrificial death on Calvary's cross. And finally, identification. Jesus will identify himself not only with John's ministry, but he's going to identify with me. 
and with you. He's going to identify with every single human being who identifies themselves as a person who's in trouble. Every single person who says, I'm a sinner and I need a savior. I need to experience grace and mercy and washing and forgiveness and cleansing. And in the next chapter, the Holy Spirit will drive Jesus back into the Judean wilderness. And we're going to see a picture of the scapegoat, which symbolically uh, carries the nation's sin into the wilderness, which is a a kind of a, a picture of Leviticus chapter 16, verses 1 through 10. Jesus will take his place. Really, he will take your place. My place. He will identify with the crowd that has shown up who are willing to turn from their sin and turn to the Lord. He will identify with the nation Israel, but he will also identify with a larger, broken World, Think about that for just a moment. Just for a moment. Jesus identifies with lost humanity. With every single person. And so now we begin to understand a little bit better in 2 Corinthians 5.21. Where Paul writes, thinking about that. For he, that's the Father, made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. The picture is that the Lord God pours all human sin and punishment for that sin into Jesus. And pours all of the righteousness of Jesus into the believing sinner who becomes the believing saint. Do you have a family? Some of you do. Some of you may be in a situation in your life where your grandparents, your parents are gone. Maybe even some of your immediate family is gone. And you share their name and you share their memory. But you identify with your family. You identify. That's what what a family does. A family identifies with each other. We share a common history But we also share a common destiny. And that's what Jesus is doing in his humanity. He's sharing with you in your circumstance. He will identify with you. And he will submit to his father. Jesus was declaring his submission to the father. And he was declaring that he was on board with the father's plan. And that he had the expectation of the father's power. And that's what you do when you identify with Jesus. You identify with his plan for your life. And it's okay for you to expect power. To live that life. So again, how are we to think about the statement that Jesus makes? For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. You may not understand exactly what that might mean. Let me try to help you. When he speaks of for thus it is fitting for us. He's speaking of John the Baptist and himself. To fulfill all righteousness concerning what? Concerning God's plans. Concerning God's righteous claims. Concerning the fact 
the revelation of God, the revelation of his holiness, the revelation of his love, but also the revelation of man's sinful condition. Does God even have the right to bring up the problem that we have a problem? And so that's what he's doing. In order to bring up the problem and bring up the solution, Jesus will create a mechanism, if you will, a sort of living illustration of what's going on. For Jesus, the immersion in water, like the waters of God's judgment, and then the emergence from that water becomes a type and a picture of death and a resurrection, foreshadowing his own death, his own burial, his own resurrection. The sacrificial death of Jesus will satisfy the demands of divine justice and provide a righteous basis by which sinners could be justified so that you have a right relationship with God. So that you can enter into fellowship with God and speak to the Lord. And so look what it says, the spirit, the king is sealed in verse 16. It says, when he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. In the opening chapter of John's gospel, when John was preaching to the crowds, John the Baptist told the people, I didn't know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. John chapter 1, verse 32. And John bore witness saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove. And he remained upon him, unquote. Do you understand what's happening? How do I know which, which Messiah is the right Messiah? John the Baptist said, the Lord told me who the Messiah is and the sign that would accompany it and the spirit that would seal it. This is the exact sign. This is the exact sign and the exact seal that God the Father promised to reveal to John to identify Christ as Messiah. And you know why? Again, see, you might be thinking, well, what does all of this mean? In part, it means that the Lord is offering a series of proofs to the doubter. How do I know Jesus is real? How do I know that he's really the Messiah? How do I know he's really the one for me? The dove, of course, becomes a picture of peace and, and purity and meekness and beauty. All the attributes that he passes on to those he empowers. Jesus is the king and the king's subjects are given the gift of the Holy Spirit and the ability to walk in peace, in purity, in meekness, in beauty, in love. That's all the meanings that, that happen when the Holy Spirit shows up in your life. And this is the presence of God. This is the presence of God. 
Remember when you became a Christian and you asked Jesus to forgive you and you invited him into your heart and your life? You invited him to become a part of your life and walk with you through life. But it's also the empowering presence of the life of God. And someone, the theologically minded, might say, well, wait a minute, I thought Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. He is. Well, then why does he have to receive the Holy Spirit? I mean, after all, Jesus is God. It is true that Jesus is God. But as I'm fond of reminding you, remember, Jesus is one person with two natures. He is completely human. Jesus is completely God. And because he is completely human... In his humanity, as he identifies with human beings, the Holy Spirit qualifies him in the mission, empowers Jesus for the work in the ministry as the Redeemer. And some have mistakenly taken this too far. I once heard a so-called pastor say that Jesus never did a single uh, miracle as God, but only as a man filled with the Holy Spirit. It sounds true on the surface, but it's not true. And the reason why it's not true is because it denies the uniqueness of Jesus. Jesus is human and Jesus is God. Jesus is the only being in the universe who is completely human and completely God. But reread the verse again. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were open. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, alighting upon him. Doesn't that scene sound familiar to you? Where else in the Bible have you heard a story about water and a dove? Yeah. You got it right. Noah, the flood. Remember, Noah grew up in a contaminated world that was filled with sin and wickedness and and corruption. In Genesis 6, we saw this picture where the imagination of men were filled with wickedness all the time. There was this world that was polluted, contaminated beyond our comprehension. But the scripture says, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And the Bible says that the Lord told Noah that God would judge the earth and mercifully drown them. And you might be thinking, mercifully? Yeah, mercifully. The judgment wasn't going to be slow and painful. It was going to be quick and merciful. You know the story. God visits judgment for 40 days and 40 nights. All flesh perishes except for the eight souls and the life forms brought into the ark. And when the rain finally let up, you'll remember the story. Noah sends forth. No, before he sends forth a dove, he sends forth a raven. He sends forth a raven. You know why he sends forth a raven? Do you know what ravens eat? Corpses. Bloated bodies. Contaminated flesh. The raven didn't come back. The reason why the raven didn't come back is it was an all-you-could-eat buffet out there. 
But the dove, the dove, a bird of purity, circles, 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 and can find no place to land. And so the dove comes back to the ark and returns to Noah. John Corson writes, quote, the picture is incredible to me. By the way, Noah's name, it can mean rest or comfort. And so John Corson writes, a man called comfort, surrounded by water, a polluted world on the outside drowned, and the dove comes upon him, unquote. By the way, those watching Jesus being baptized, do you think they recall Genesis chapter 6? The story of Noah gives us an insight, I think, into the meaning of the importance of baptism. When you're baptized, you're leaving this dying world. You're, you're leaving something that's dead and decaying. You're leaving it behind you. And the world in the past was judged by water. The world in the future will be judged by fire. You get the picture of, of, of again, what does this world have to offer you? Nothing. The world has nothing to offer you apart from Christ. That's part of the point. The world has nothing to offer you. The world is void. The world is decaying. The world is dying. The world is sinful. The world is corrupt. The world is a temporal place. The world's days are numbered. And this is what happens when you're baptized. The world is plunged into a watery grave. It is judged. It's put to death. But like Noah, you rise above the water. You rise above the flood. You are safe. You are safe. You're safe because your life is hidden in the ark of God. That's part of the point. You're going to survive. And by the way, Noah is inside of that ship. His family is inside of that ship. Life forms are inside of that ship. And guess what's going to happen? They're going to survive the flood and they're going to enter into a new world. And for those of you who know and love Jesus, you're going to, you're going to survive this world. And you're going to enter into a new world. Every Christian should be baptized. If for no other reason than to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus knows no sin, but he is willing to identify with you. You've known nothing but sin, but Jesus asks you to be baptized. I think that uh, Jesus wants us to let the world go. I know it might be hard for some of you to comprehend this or even embrace it. But you need to let it drown. You need to let it drown. You need to let it go. And you need to rise to a new way of living. And that's why baptism is central to the faith of Christians. That's why the early church baptized new believers. That's why baptism unites Christians as members in a mutual body. But baptism, baptism, baptism has no significance whatsoever. 
apart from Christ, apart from faith, apart from the gospel. If you don't know Jesus, if you don't love Jesus, if you've never received Jesus, if you've never walked with Jesus by faith, then guess what? All you did was get wet. And so the Bible encourages us to change our direction. By the way, the Bible tells another story about a guy who was found underwater. Do you remember the story? about the man who had a radical baptism. His Hebrew name was Dove. But you know him by the name of Jonah. Jonah, remember, was a prophet who was tasked with the duty to proclaim a message of repentance to the people of Nineveh. But there was only one problem. There was only one problem. Jonah hated Gentiles. But there was one group of people that he hated in particular, more than all the rest of the Gentiles. And it was the Ninevites. And the reason why he hated the Ninevites so much is because they would come to the northern part of the kingdom. They would slaughter the people who were there. They would cut their heads off and they would build a big pile of skulls. Do you know what it would be like? It would be like if you found yourself in a Nazi prison camp and the Lord said to you, I want you to preach the gospel to the Nazis. And you go, right, yeah, right. He knew that God was kind. He knew that, that if they repented, God would spare their lives. And so Jonah rebelled against God and decided to take a cruise ship in the opposite direction. And you'll remember he was thrown overboard in the belly and he winds up in the belly of a, of a giant sea creature. And for three days, for three days, for three days, Jonah is in a watery gastrointestinal Hades. And he's broken. And he repents of his arrogance and disobedience. And suddenly, he's resurrected. As the sea creature barfs him up on the shore. <laughs> Jonah's baptism was a different kind of a baptism. It wasn't a drowning of the world around him. It was a different kind of drowning. It was the drowning of rebellion and selfishness within him. Jonah had his own agenda, but through baptism, Jonah will surrender his agenda and he will fulfill God's agenda. And what was Jesus' agenda? What is Jesus trying to do? Jesus wants to save you. He loves you. He wants to forgive you. He wants to rescue you from drowning in God's judgment, from burning in a certain future. You were meant to survive into a new world. And Jesus, Jesus knew exactly what baptism meant. It meant to fulfill the will of God in your life. 
And you might be thinking, okay, I understand that during the time of Noah's flood, there was a judgment that resulted in in the death of everything outside of the ark. In Noah, there's a dying to the sin around us. In the baptism of Jonah, there's a dying to sin within us. And I've identified myself with Jesus and I've walked with Jesus and I've gone to church and I've read Bibles and I've tried to do what's right and I've failed, failed, failed miserably. Some of you might be thinking I was baptized years ago. And I made promises and I thought I was going to get it right, but I haven't exactly got it right. Hey, guess what happened after Noah was baptized? (laughs) He failed. The boat lands. He's on the other side of life. He gets drunk. He disgraces himself. He's found exposed in a humiliating way that invites a curse on one of his grandchildren, a curse that that we suffer to this very day. Noah's sin wasn't eradicated with the destruction of humanity. Noah didn't cease to be a human on the other side of the flood. He failed. He sinned. What about Jonah? He preaches the greatest single revival in the history of revivals. An entire city turns from their sin, turns to the Lord. 400,000 people of Nineveh turn to the Lord. They're spared destruction. And what does Jonah do? He throws a pity party. He finds himself under a gourd. He experiences severe and profound depression. He is so angry because God is so kind and so generous. He knew that if he just simply said the words, 40 days till destruction, repent, that there would be people who would actually turn from their sin and turn to the Lord. And the selfishness that should have died, the selfishness that should have died, the selfishness that should have died in the belly of the whale remained inside of his heart. During Noah's baptism, reigned 40 days. After Jonah's baptism, preaches 40 days. After Noah's baptism, a trial. After Jonah's baptism, a trial. After Jesus' baptism, a trial. A test. He'll go into the wilderness for 40 days. Do you believe in coincidence? I don't. If there's 40 days of flood, and if there's 40 days of preaching with Jonah, and if there's 40 days in the wilderness, 40 becomes a type, a a picture of judgment. But the difference between Noah and the difference between Jonah and the difference between Jesus is that Jesus is going to overcome the temptation and the trial. He's going to emerge victorious. Noah, who found grace, exercised faith and failed. Jonah, a gifted preacher, failed. But Jesus won't fail. And you may have failed. 
But the Lord Jesus loves you. And Jesus inside of you will overcome the devil. In your baptism, you died to the sin around you. And in your baptism, you died to the sin that's inside of you. But in your baptism, you also believe in the one who died for you. You see, when you were baptized, you weren't perfected. That happens when you go to heaven and you're in a glorified body. You may not be perfect, but you're perfectly forgiven. You're perfectly loved. Jesus pays for your sin, all of your sin, because there's nothing, there's nothing, there's nothing imperfect about his sacrifice. The same Jesus who triumphed over over trials, lives inside of you. You may be a work in progress, but you're his work in progress. That's why the the Bible with complete confidence can say, he who has begun the work in you will see it to the day of fruition. And so look at verse 17, and suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. In the New Testament, the Father speaks to the Son from heaven three times. Here, in Matthew 17, verse 5, in John chapter 12, verse 28. Can you imagine saying, give me proof that Jesus is the Messiah? Can you imagine John the Baptist going, make the sky open and make God speak? And the sky opens and God speaks. But listen to what the father says. This is my beloved son. Do you know what he's doing? He's quoting Psalm chapter 2 verse 7. In whom I am well pleased. Do you know what he's doing? He's quoting Isaiah chapter 42 verse 1. This is my priceless son. This is the one I'm deeply pleased with. This is my son whom I approve. This is the Father's way of saying, I like what Jesus has to say. And I like what Jesus does. The hidden years are over. The ministry of Jesus, it must begin. And in order to begin the ministry, he needs the Father's approval. Let me ask you something. Is there something you would like to do for the Lord? Have you sought his approval? I'd invite you to do exactly that. Jesus is God's son. In Psalm 2-7 it says, The Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day I have begotten thee. Acts chapter 13 verse 22 informs us that this begetting refers to his resurrection from the dead, not his birth in Bethlehem. This statement ties in perfectly with the Lord's baptismal experience of death, burial, resurrection. Jesus is the servant of the Lord. Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is the son of David. Jesus is the spirit bearer. Matthew is trying to tell us that in Jesus, God fulfills all of his promises. And Paul writes, all the promises of God find their answer yes in him. 
in 2 Corinthians 1.20. So in this, we have this powerful, powerful picture of the Trinity. The baptism of Jesus reveals the anointing of the Son of God by the Spirit of God, and then the declaration by the Father who is God. You have the Father, and you have the Son, and you have the Holy Spirit. And the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Spirit. Simply put, the Son is baptized. The Spirit descends like a dove. The Father speaks from heaven. As he enters his ministry, the Son is approved by the Father. As he, Jesus, approaches the cross. Later in John 17, verse 5, when the sky opens again and the Lord speaks again, it's right before Jesus will face the cruel cross. He receives the same commendation again later on. And your head might be swimming right about now. But the Holy Spirit is a person. Someone who possesses the Spirit and dwells. And the one who gives power. So then, the baptism of Jesus is an affirmation of John's ministry. It's an identification with us personally. It's a declaration of the Father prophetically. It's an illustration of the Trinity practically. And in the baptism of Jesus, we see a living illustration of our own baptism. Because we're baptized by Jesus into the Holy Spirit. We become members of Christ's forever family and members of his church. We are baptized in water. And then we identify with Jesus in his death and his burial and his resurrection. We have a coming out party. We let our family and our friends know. I want to make a forever declaration that I'm on board with Jesus. By the way, have you been baptized by the spirit into the body? Have you been baptized in water? In obedience to Christ? Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready to fulfill all righteousness? If you've already been baptized, maybe it's time to remember that you can be like Noah and you can watch the world around you drown in judgment because God's called you to live differently, to live by faith. Perhaps now is the time to be like Jonah, die to selfishness, walk in newness of life, speak God's message to a world that's on the verge of extinction. And if you failed, like Noah, like Jonah, like comfort and dove, cry out to God, thank him that Jesus didn't fail. Thank him that Jesus succeeds where others fail. And that you can trust him. That you can walk with him. That you can rely on him. And that you don't have to doubt. You don't have to doubt anymore. Let's pray. Heavenly Father,
Lord, for the person who who's never gone on record, who's never trusted you, who's never identified with you, who's never cried out to you. Lord, for the person who has heard your voice and has heard the extended invitation, come to me, all you who labor and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Believe in me. Lord, I pray that they would do exactly that. Turn from their sin and trust Jesus. That they would confess their sin. And allow Jesus to be the Lord of their life. And for that man or that woman who's never made a public declaration of love and loyalty. Lord, I'd like to extend them the opportunity to do exactly that. To come forward. And to go on record. I want to know them and I want to love them. And for the person who's never been baptized, Lord. I pray that they would do that they, they would follow in obedience Jesus's command that they would allow the washing of the water to be a type and a picture of walking away from this world and cleansing from the contamination on the inside and walk in newness of life and again father thank you for the ministry of Jesus we know that sometimes lord After judgment comes a test, comes a trial. And Lord, we look forward to the test and Jesus' victory in the next chapter. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.